0: Hi, right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, it's another special episode as we wrap up 2021. And right now, we are going to be looking back at our favorite first-time watches of 2021. These are older movies that we watched for the first time last year. And I uh, just wanted to give a little shout-out to some of these... Uh, that we're finally getting around to, and joining me for this, as he did last year, is Josh Bell from Awesome Movie Year. We have a great conversation coming up. A lot of great movies we talk about. So that is coming up in a second. Before we do get to the conversation, though, I want to remind you, as always, to make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. You can rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, also on Podchaser and Good Pods. And we really do appreciate your five star ratings. So uh, if you enjoy what we do here on the show keep them coming we really we really love it when you do that uh you can also follow us on social media at piecing pod and join our facebook group popcorn and puzzle pieces and check out the patreon produced by david rosen lots of great content over there from piecing it together awesome movie year and from my music career so lots of good stuff to check out on the patreon so let's just get into this because we got a lot of movies to talk about uh i think we we got no overlap. So that's like a solid 20. And then we got a bunch of honorable mentions. So we got, we got a lot of movies to talk about. Let's get to the conversation. All right, Josh Bell is back with us to talk about some of our favorite first time watches of older movies that we watched for the first time in 2021. Josh, how's it going?
1: It's good. I like this is a, such a fun thing to do. And I, I love that this has become a thing. Like, I started making these lists in 2008 when Letterboxd didn't exist, and I was inspired by some, like, comment in, like, the, you know, deep in some comment thread on an article (laughs) on the AV Club, probably on their, like, you know, regular top ten movies of the year, and some random person was like, oh, here's my top ten that I saw the first time this year. And I thought, what a cool idea. I'm going to do this. And I'm not saying it was, you know, I'm a trailblazer necessarily, (laughs) but I feel like other than that one person, I hadn't really seen it done. And now it's, especially with Letterboxd, it's all over the place. And I mean, I think it's just cool because it shows people making an effort to really delve into older films and celebrate the older films that they saw, that they loved. And uh, I'm all in favor of that. So it's fun to do
0: I think it's funny that you that you say that because yeah when I when I came to you last year and said you know do you want to do it I've I've seen your articles you want to do it as a piecing it together episode like to me it was your idea you know I mean (laughs) it's like you're the first person I saw that did that and uh you're right I see a lot of people making lists like this now and so yeah it's it's a cool thing you know we all are watching so many movies and especially in this past year or two with the pandemic and everything and being stuck in our houses and so like we're all watching so many movies it's it makes sense to, to kind of rate these in this way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I find it fun as also just a way to kind of, uh, look back on the year and remind myself of what I saw. That was great because the movies from the year you're talking about constantly and making, everyone's making lists and everyone's doing retrospectives. And, you know, the movies on this list, oftentimes I use this as a template or as a a reference point when I'm writing like, what are my favorite movies of all time? Or what are my favorite movies? If you want to know my top 10 movies from 1984 or whatever, like now I can look back and remember like, oh, I saw that one and it was really great. So I I think it's, it's a valuable resource.
0: Speaking of 1984, two movies from 1984 on my list. Oh, I just um, picked that sort of arbitrarily. Yeah. How but, about uh, that? Uh, <laughs> it was an awesome movie
1: year. As it we sure was about on awesome yes. movie year. So I assume that's maybe why you have
0: those. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we've got ten movies to talk about, and we'll get a few honorable mentions at the end. So why don't we just start jumping right in? What do you have for number ten?
1: So my number 10 pick is a movie that I just, uh, as of this recording, had posted my, my uh, link to my list on Twitter. And my friend Jim Begley was aghast that I had never <laughs> seen this film. It is from 1986, Russell Mulcahy's Highlander, which is Ooh. not an obscure film by any means, but is in fact a movie that I had not ever seen. And weirdly, as I noted on Letterboxd, is a movie that I should have seen when I was 12 years old, and like a million times when I was 12 years old, (laughs) because it is the kind of movie that at that age, I was so into. Um, And I think it's a great movie now. I mean, I watch this, a lot of movies I end up watching, um, because I write for this site called How to Geek, and I have to do a lot of these streaming guides that are like, the 10 best movies of whatever genre on, you know, Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or various streaming services. And so I'll kind of pick stuff out. I was like, oh, I should, I'm going to you know, watch this movie or that movie to fill out that list. And this was one that was streaming, I want to say, on Amazon Prime. And I thought, oh yeah, I probably should check that out. And it was just, it's just so fun. It's super, super cheesy, but in a really entertaining, really effective way. Uh, Russell Mulcahy, started out as a music video director, and this is from the height of the, you know, 80s MTV popularity. The soundtrack is full of all of these Huge bombastic songs by Queen. And a lot of this feels in a good way like a two hour, like rock, like arena rock music video. Mm -hmm. It's got this over the top sci fi story about these immortals who are battling each other through the ages, as a ridiculous Sean Connery performance, um, some cheesy romance. um, But it's just, it's a really It's really cool. I mean, that's a silly, you know, not a sophisticated film critic word to use, (laughs) but it just has all of these like badass, fun elements that we always want to see in action blockbusters and just handle with that right kind of style, yet also tongue in cheek humor and excitement. And, you know, it makes you think like, what an awesome franchise this is going to be. And One of the reasons I think I had never seen it is because for some stupid reason, I saw like one of the later sequels in the theater when I Mm. was a teenager that was just awful. And I I thought, well, this is a bunch of garbage. I don't want to watch any more of this. And so I never bothered, but don't watch the sequels. And it is a huge franchise. There's a TV series and there's an animated series and there's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, But the original stands on its own. I assume you've seen this, Dave.
0: You know what? That... This is one of those 80s movies that I'm sure I probably did, but I don't remember it like at all. And I, I think I'm going to love it when I finally get around to it. I mean, as a fan of like Mortal Kombat and stuff like that, you know, I think that I will love this movie. I
1: think you will, too. And and like I said, I feel like if you were that age in the 80s or, you know, early 90s and you liked these kinds of movies, then if you for some reason haven't seen this, uh, it's it's absolutely you'll love it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, watching it one of these days. I I can't wait. Yeah. Uh, Right along with that, 1984, my number 10, a movie that I watched for the uh, Binge Movies podcast, a guest appearance on there, which a bunch of those movies have appeared in my lists of these last couple of years. Uh, This is called Voyage of the Rock Aliens by director James Fargo, stars Pia Zadora, and uh, is... Absolutely insane, and I I don't understand how it's not a cult classic like one of these midnight movies. It is, it's a a rock opera, you know, musical uh, that also. Happens to be like a straight up spoof movie. I mean, the whole thing takes place in Spielberg, USA, is the name of the city that it takes place in. Um, the songs kind of sound like a cross between like Streets of Fire and Footloose and Little Shop of Horrors. And uh, it's just so full of energy and ridiculous comedy and just laugh out loud nonsense. But, all, you know, all the things I mentioned Streets of Fire, but like all of that kind of a thing, all of the uh, just over-the-top 80s-ness one thing that just blows my mind about this movie is uh, like i said it was it was it came out in 1984 i don't understand it's skewering everything that you associate with the 80s but that's essentially early 80s still like early to mid 80s and the fact that it like was already making fun of everything we've come to uh you know associate with the 80s in general is kind of mind-boggling to me but uh yeah th- this movie is nuts and uh the soundtrack I-, I expected it to be some weird you know obviously nobody talks about this movie I expected it to be like hard to find but it's actually right there on Spotify and I ended up listening to it for like weeks after I watched this movie and I was really worried that my Spotify year in review was going to be filled with Piazzadora but uh luckily she was pushed down a little bit but uh yeah these songs I love them they're they're ridiculous and fun and I, I would love to watch this with a crowd one day.
1: That sounds like a lot of fun. And I know you love spoof movies. So yeah, uh, it makes sense that you love They're that. They're far and
0: few between uh, nowadays. So, you know, when you discover an old classic from the glory days of spoofs. Right. Yeah, it it, it could be a fun thing for sure. Yeah, I don't
1: I don't think I'd heard of this until I saw you, you know, raving about it when you first watched it. So yeah, uh, yeah it seems like a fun one. So yeah. I, I do enjoy Pia Zadora in uh, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which <laughs> I, I partially
0: watched. <laughs> That's a seal of approval right there. i have seen watched. before,
1: but partially watched again when I was doing some, some Christmas movie roundups. And, uh, you know, if you want to hear a great Pia Zadora song, the theme song from Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, here comes Sandy Claus. Oh, is uh, boy. So catchy. I realize this has nothing to do with your pick, but I'm just going to hijack. Magic Piazzadora
0: song. Why to, not? To recommend the
1: theme song from Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Not the movie, just the theme song. Yeah. I'm going to check it out All for right. sure.
0: What do you got for number nine?
1: <laughs> All right. So, my number nine is another kind of over the top action movie that. i had heard a lot. It's not on the level of Highlander as a classic. It's more of a cult movie these days, but I feel like it has a huge fan following now. And I think this is a movie that you like, Dave. Uh, It's Dread from 2012, uh, directed by Pete Travis. And this is another movie that I watched just to kind of fill out a list that I was doing that I had heard lots of good things about. And it's... Very, like I feel like uh Jason Harris, my awesome movie, your co-host, is the kind of movie that he always talks about loving because it's this just meat and potatoes kind of B movie. It is based on the Judge Dredd comic books, but they don't bring in like all of this mythology or backstory. It's a very simple setup of this dystopian world. Judge Dredd is this kind of uh, he's judge, jury, and executioner, this future cop. And he and his partner, uh, he's played by Carl Urban, and he and his partner played by Olivia Thorlby, along with some of their uh, disposable associates. They go to this ginormous high-rise building to take down this drug lord played by Lena Headey. And it owes a lot to the movie The Raid because it's really just about going up yeah. level by level and fighting more bad guys. And it's the action is really well staged. Um, the characters are perfectly drawn in that you know enough about them to care, but not so much that it bogs down from the action. And sure. same with the world building. It gives you a sense of this sci-fi dystopia, but it doesn't hit you over the head with a ton of exposition. It's actually written by Alex Garland, who does hit you over the head with a ton of exposition in a lot of his work, <laughs> not in a bad way. Um, but I feel like this is the perfect balance of that. So it does have a certain cult following um, and probably deserves more so. So uh, Dread.
0: You know, I've actually not seen it. I oh, okay. own it and I've never watched it, <laughs> uh, but I've heard nothing but great things from people who like over-the-top B-movie action type stuff. And, and I have a feeling I would really like it. I'm going to have to watch it one of these days.
2: Yeah,
1: I think you would. I mean, we talked about Joe Carnahan a bunch on that regular, the yeah. 2021 top 10. And this is, this is in the vein of those kinds of films.
0: So speaking of our uh, 2021 top 10, I was surprised that Dune didn't come up at all the Denis Villeneuve version of Dune but for my number nine it is the 1984 David Lynch version of Dune which I had never seen and I watched after having watched the new one and I actually liked a little bit more than the new Dune. Um, the, I've come around on uh, Villeneuve's Dune I, I I respect just how big and bombastic it all is and I, I think that there's definitely uh, art, a lot of artistry in that but Lynch's Dune is just so much more fun. Um, it's it's so over-the-top. It's so ridiculous. And the story is kind of ridiculous, you know, so it, it makes sense for it to be that ridiculous. Um, I think the kind of outdated effects are just really cool looking and at a lot of times just uh better to look at than than just like oh it's a big sandy planet with big giant ships like it 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 uses all kinds of really crazy weird stuff in it and I know this movie is uh you know notoriously considered like this big disaster but it's so unique and so different and so weird and so much fun that I I just kind of really liked it a lot.
1: Yeah, I also watched it for the first time in anticipation of the new one. And I think I maybe liked the new one more than you did. It wasn't on my top 10 list, but it would have been fairly close. And mm-hmm. I, I thought it was really good. And one of the things I liked about the new one a lot is that I did feel like the effects, you know, so many modern movies are just full of so much CGI that doesn't feel like it has any presence to right. it. And I thought thought that was not true. And I think generally Villeneuve is really good at making his effects like count, and feel like Mm -hmm. they have an impact in his sci-fi films. Um, But I agree with you that the Lynch version is fun, in part because it's a disaster, because it's so insane, and it just keeps getting more insane as it goes along. And you can almost see the movie getting away from him as it goes on, where he's trying to cram in, you know, Villeneuve only did half the book, but he's cramming in the whole story as much as he possibly can, even if he has to have a character talk at you for four minutes straight in the opening Mm -hmm. of the film. Um, And so it is kind of endearing. Definitely the the ornate, weird special effects from that era are, are fun to watch. So I don't know if I would call it a Good movie, but is certainly a fun movie to watch.
0: (laughs) Very, very fair. And yeah, and I got to say, you know, when we recorded our Dune episode of Piecing It Together, you and I, uh, we didn't know yet whether or not Villeneuve was going to get a chance to make part two. And now we know that he is. And some of the stuff that happens in the second half of (laughs) of this movie, I don't know how that's going to translate to his more, you know, kind of grounded version of the story. Um, It's going to be interesting to see uh, Timothy Chalamet riding on a uh, sandworm.
1: I look forward to it. <laughs>
0: yeah. So uh what do we got for your number 8?
1: So number 8 for me is uh another movie that I watched for various list purposes. This year I had to write a lot of Christmas movie content this year. <laughs> oh, boy. Um and many of which was about movies that I had already seen, but uh I watched uh Ernst Lubitsch's 1940 romantic comedy The Shop Around the Corner starring uh, Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan. And this is known more these days for being the source material for the movie You've Got Mail with Tom Mm. Hanks and Meg Ryan, which I actually have never seen. So Mm. I can't comment on whether that's a good adaptation. But this is just, I feel like, I mean, Lubitsch is known for the Lubitsch touch, as as it's called, for this sort of lightness and wit that he brought to so many romantic comedies and stories that could seem really sappy, that he has this perfect balance of cleverness and sentiment. And that's exactly what's going on in this film. Um, Like You've Got Mail, the central story is about these two characters who are falling in love by writing to each other. In this case, they're writing literal physical letters to each other. Uh, And in person, they seem to hate each other. They're bickering and they don't realize that they're really in love. Uh, Mm. In this case, they both work at the same store. I think in You've Got Mail, there's some sort of there's like a rivalry between two businesses. I don't know. But here, (laughs) the whole movie is really just about the people who work in this little shop. It takes place in Budapest in Hungary in 1940. And it's more than just the romance. It's all about the little dramas of these characters. Uh, the way the employees form sort of a surrogate family, but it's also there's tensions between the bosses and the workers. And it's just a world that you want to live in. And, of course, Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan are great. And, of course, there's a wonderful romantic climax that takes place on Christmas Eve, which is why I wrote about it as a Christmas movie. Um, yeah. But it's just a movie that makes you feel nice the whole time you're watching it. So um, it's it's beloved, but I think in a way it maybe got a little overshadowed by the later films. So. It's on HBO Max, the shop around the corner.
0: Sounds great. And uh, I I love the uh, makes you feel nice watching it as a transition to my next pick, uh, which is The Trust, the Nicolas Cage movie from 2016 by Benjamin and Alex Brewer, uh, which does not make you feel nice watching (laughs) it. But uh, yeah, I watched this for an appearance on the Cage Rage podcast, which I believe you were on as well, right? I Uh, was. The the
1: movie that I watched will not be on my list.
0: Okay, fair (laughs) enough. Fair enough. Yeah, well, this one was surprisingly good. Uh, You get a few little glimpses of, uh, you know, crazy Nicolas Cage that we all love. But we also get Nicolas Cage the good actor in this. We get a little bit of both. And, you know, this year we got that big reminder of Nicolas Cage the good actor with Pig. Uh, But The Trust came out in 2006, which was like dead in the middle of like a long string of straight-to-video schlock that he was doing, and not a lot of good movies were kind of attached to his name. So it was really surprising to go back to this one and find like a solid little dirty cop, crime-gone-wrong type of thriller. And, uh, you know, on top of the the main story, which also, by the way, uh, has Elijah Wood in a really great uh, supporting role with him, uh, but also a really great depiction of the real side of Las Vegas, which you don't really see in movies very often. So as a Vegas guy, it was great to see it for that reason as well. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to this movie to like, and you know, it's still, you know, a pretty, uh, under the radar, gritty B kind of movie, but a really well done one.
1: Yeah. I agree with you. I like this movie too. I saw it when it first came out, I reviewed it, um, because it's a Vegas movie and, mm. you know, it was shot here and there are a lot of, you know, there was sort of local talent involved in, in, in lesser roles. Yeah. And I remember, I being wary of it, I think, and like, oh, I hope this is good, you know, to support our local community or whatever. And it, it is good. I agree. It's a solid crime story. It's a good, I've seen so many, you know, I end up writing a lot about Vegas movies, and there's so many Vegas set movies that are made by people not from here that that miss the point of Vegas entirely. Yeah, for sure. And this is definitely a good Vegas story as well as just a solid thriller. So uh yeah, I'm with you. I like it. And maybe as Cage's has a bit of his own renaissance this year. People will look back. And this is one that you can pick out from all of that straight to video garbage and and look at and say, no, this is is a pretty good one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what do you got for number seven?
1: So my number seven is the movie Seconds, directed by John Frankenheimer from 1966. And this is a movie I wrote about. uh, I had, a for a several month period, was writing every week about underrated sci-fi movies that were streaming for free. And I'm not sure if this is still available for free. It was on uh, Canopy, the library service. But uh, I was kind of, at a certain point, ran out of movies that I was already familiar with, and so searching around for new things to write about. And this is a movie that has a definite cult following and that I'd heard a lot about. and it's it's fascinating it stars rock hudson as in a sort of later point in his career and he's really playing off of that handsome pretty boy hunk image that was he did like the defining quality that he had all through uh, you know the 50s and 60s or whatever and mm. the plot is that there is this middle-aged kind of banker who's he's dissatisfied with his life but nothing's really wrong it's just he feels like life is not Exciting anymore. And he gets this mysterious offer. It's very Twilight Zone ish. Gets this mysterious offer from this company that they will basically uh, reconstitute him and uh, give him a new body, a new appearance, and a new life as a young single playboy. And so, halfway through the movie or so, suddenly now he's played by Rock Hudson. And Mm. of course, when you make any kind of deal like that, it doesn't turn out the way that you expect it. And, uh, you know, he realizes that maybe. His life before was better and uh, being young and single is not for him. And uh, there's a lot of stuff here, too, that goes to the culture clashes of the 1960s that suddenly a middle-aged man in 1966 becoming a young man in 1966 is out of place with people who are actually young in that time. And so he's sort of horrified by this artistic community that he gets placed in. And so it's a very existential story with a very dark ending. It's shot in gorgeous black and white. And, you know, Frankenheimer is known for a lot of big action-y thriller things, and this is maybe more cerebral, but Mm -hmm. it's also uh, suspenseful and intense. So A cool movie that, again, I think has a cult following, but maybe not super well-known, so seconds.
0: Yeah, it sounds really good. I've never seen it. It it sounds like a movie that would be really ripe for a remake right now, like with this particular moment. that That sounds like it would work so well. Yeah, I think so. It's based on a novel that
1: I wasn't very familiar with, but I imagine that some filmmaker now could go back to that source material and have an interesting new take on it.
0: So, my number seven, another one I watched for an appearance on the Binge Movies podcast is 1993's Freaked, directed by Alex Winter and starring Alex Winter, which was made between the two Bill and Ted movies. And if you're like me and actually like Bogus Journey more than Excellent Adventure, this movie is for you. Um, It is just absolutely insane. Uh, It's filled with all kinds... It's set in a uh, uh, carnival where this guy is... Basically, kidnapped and mutated into a freak. And it's got this total like oddball punk rock aesthetic to it. And it's just filled with practical effects and puppetry and like all kinds of really cool looking stuff. And when it first started off, I was definitely not on its wavelength. And I was like, I was just like, this is really, really stupid for the first five, 10 minutes. And then it just kind of took me over and I was like, oh, wow, this is unique and fresh and interesting and unlike anything I had really seen before. And just freaking crazy, and it's also got a great supporting cast as well. William Sadler's in it, Brooke, Brooke Shields, Randy Quaid, and Mr. T is the bearded lady. Um, there's just there's so much weird stuff in this movie, and like I said, it it's definitely more bogus journey than excellent adventure or the recent Face to Music, but uh, it, it fits in really well with with the Bill and Ted movies and just that kind of inspired by oddball weirdo sci-fi kind of stuff that they were into.
1: Yeah, I remember. I watched this movie as a kid because I loved Bill and Ted.
0: It probably scared
1: the and shit I, out of you. <laughs> I hated it. I hated okay. it. I want to say, and my memory is kind of fuzzy, but I want to say, and this was like a notorious failure also at the box right. office, I think this movie. So yeah. I want to say that a friend of mine who also liked Bill and Ted, you know, had found this on home video or something. and was like, Oh, we got to watch this movie. And I was like, why did you make me watch this? Yeah. I hated it. But I mean, this is oh, probably almost thirty years ago at this point. So yeah. maybe I would enjoy it, and it sounds interesting. Um, and Alex Winter is a real interesting guy. And I, oh yeah, know, I like he he's like a big advocate for film critics and film criticism. So I want yeah. I want to <laughs> support him. So maybe I would like. But I just have a memory of watching this and being like. Why? Why did you subject me to this film?
0: <laughs> well, I will say I I had the same reaction to Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey back when I was a kid. I was like, "This is terrible. This is nothing like the first Bill and Ted," you know. And and I hated it until I rewatched it last year in the lead up to Face the Music, and now I just absolutely love it. So I don't know. There are definitely different points of view for coming at the movie, and maybe it was just you know the wrong time for a movie like this. I don't know. But it should mention also that it was kind of I think hard to find for a long time, and I, I think it's still might be very hard to find. I, I got it on, uh, it was on YouTube, actually, of all places somebody had put it on. But uh, I don't know where exactly you can stream this right now.
1: Yeah, I don't know either. I'm sure we rented it on VHS back in the day, you know, but uh, that's probably not something you can do right
0: now anymore. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what do you got for number six?
1: All right. So my number six pick is Kitty Green's film Casting John Bonet, from 2017. And I I think probably when we did our top 10 last year, we talked about Kitty Green's film, The Assistant, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. And that was her first narrative film. But Casting John Bonnet, which is a documentary, has a lot in common with The Assistant in that it is based on... A very uh sort of well talked about, excessively talked about uh modern event, in this case the murder of John Bonet Ramsey, um, and comes at it with this sort of weird deconstructionist point of view. So the concept of this film is that if and if you don't know basic details about the murder of John Bonet Ramsey, you might have trouble understanding what this film is, uh, because it doesn't tell you really. The background per se. But Kitty Green went to the town in Colorado where this happened and she held auditions for what was sort of billed as, and I don't know how she presented this to people, but billed as a fiction film, a narrative film about the murder of John Binet Ramsey. And she auditions all of these people who all live in this community, some of whom have personal connections to the Ramseys, and has them play these various people, the family members, all of these people who have been at one time suspects in these deliberately very artificial reenactments that she shows you over and over again with different people in different roles. And then she interviews these people about their feelings and their perspectives on the case. So this is a true crime documentary that is not interested in solving the crime. It's not right. interested in finding out what really happened. It's interested in the way that we perceive crimes, in the yeah. way that we react to crimes, and the way that it affects our own lives. And. It's just, it's really fascinating the way that she plays with our audience perceptions about what is sort of real and what is telling a story. And the climax of this movie has like all of these people performing the parts at the same time, which is just, it's overwhelming, but it's also just shows you how much noise there is surrounding something like this. So The Assistant got so much attention and this is a Netflix original documentary. And Netflix, of course, pumps out like dozens of documentaries all the time. And I feel like this got lost. But it's really good. So casting John Benet.
0: Yeah, I saw this back when it first came out and I remember it was great. I, I didn't realize that it was Kitty Green, though. So uh, that's that's really interesting. She's done some really great stuff. Yeah, I think she's super
1: talented and she's she's made one other film called Ukraine is not a brothel, which is also a documentary that came before this that I'd really like to see. And just the way that she approaches this material, I think, is so unique and and creative. And I, I don't know what she's working on now, but I can't wait to see it.
0: For sure. Well, uh, my number six is Krisha from Trey Edward Schultz from 2015. Uh, It's one of those movies I just always was meaning to get around to and just never got to it. I I really liked his other films. Uh, It Comes at Night and Waves. And this one just absolutely blew me away. I think it's his best movie. Uh, It's a small, intimate story of a woman suffering from her past addictions uh, who goes to her estranged family's house for a Thanksgiving dinner and just the way that uh Schultz directs this thing um I mean it just is one of the most naturalistic real feeling films I think I've seen in a long time just it and that realness just adds to the uncomfortableness of this character and of like kind of feeling what she must be going through being in this situation and you know it's all it wouldn't work if it wasn't for krisha Fairchild's performance as this lead character and just how real she makes everything feel. And it's a very heavy movie, very, very dark and devastating story. And uh, certainly not one you could recommend to just, you know, anybody, uh, unless you're really looking for that kind of a story. But it is just so perfectly told and uh, it really stays with you for a long time after watching it.
1: Yeah, I wish I felt that way. I, I actually, I saw this movie at a film festival. So, you know, kind of before he was a big thing, although I think it was already like a movie that had been at a bunch of festivals that was, you know, picking up steam or whatever. And, you know, we talked about this uh, in reference to various things. And, you know, I think I have a lower tolerance for these movies that are just about like showing you an awful person making terrible decisions that hurt people for two hours (laughs) or whatever. Right. Yeah. And I just couldn't, I, I really like it comes at night. I wasn't crazy about waves. I feel like, he certainly has a really interesting style, but I couldn't get on board with this one. So mm-hmm. but Christian Failchild also talented. There was a movie from from 2021 uh called uh uh Freeland that didn't get much attention at all that she stars in. That's where she plays this aging cannabis farmer who has to adapt to uh the legalization of marijuana. That's mm-hmm. a really nice performance from her and a a nice a character study and also this very lived in, like glimpse into this world that, I mean, I think it's a, it's a much more subdued character than in Grisha, yeah. but if you like her work, like it's a really, uh, it's a really well-made film. So I think she's very talented. I, 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 I wasn't on board with that. One.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. That, that sounds really good. Actually. I need to uh, seek that out. It's good to hear that she's, you know, getting some other roles. Cause yeah. Yeah. She,
1: I mean, I know that was like, she's Trey Edward Schultz's aunt, I think. Yeah, And he kind of brought her out of semi-retirement to star in that film. And and she is working, maybe not super steadily, but you know, in a a decent amount of time. Yeah.
0: So what do you got for number five? So my
1: number five pick is a movie that we almost talked about on Awesome Movie Year. Uh, It's Wait Until Dark from 1967. And right before... Uh, We were about to start our season on the films of 1967. I watched this sort of randomly, and I hadn't realized, oh, wait, this is from that year too. And it was just something I had on DVD from Netflix. Um, And I didn't use it as my pick uh, in part just because I didn't want to have to watch it again like two weeks weeks later or whatever. (laughs) It was very good, but I don't really want to watch any movie again that quickly. Fair Um, enough. But it could have absolutely been... My pick. Um, it, it's. It, I feel like it's a little forgotten now, even though it was nominated for an Oscar for Audrey Hepburn at the time for her lead performance as this blind woman who has to fend off home invaders. Who, through a series of sort of ridiculous coincidences, this, these drugs that they were smuggling are hidden somewhere in her apartment, and they come in and are menacing her. And uh, Alan Arkin plays the leader of these criminals and is so scary. And so disturbing and is really like not the kind of role, especially you know, nowadays where he mostly plays like, you know, crotchety grandpa kind of roles. Sure. Yeah. It's not the kind of role we associate him with, but is really creepy. And it's it's based on a stage play. So almost the entire thing takes place just within this apartment. Uh, but the director Terence Young finds so many different ways. To stage suspenseful sequences within this single space, and Audrey Hepburn really has this whole journey as this character who has to stand up for herself and you know not be a victim, even though she has this kind of victim mentality as the movie begins because she she wasn't born blind, she hasn't been blind for that long. It's 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 the result of an accident, and she feels sort of like she's self pitying, and through the process of this harrowing experience, really finds her inner strength. Um, So yeah, it's just, it's just also like a good suspenseful thriller. So, uh, wait until dark.
0: Right on. Yeah. I, I've not seen it, but it sounds really good. Um, I'll go to my number five, uh, which is about as dark and depressing and weird as they come, but it is, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos 2009 dog tooth, which, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of his recent work, lobster and the favorite and killing of a secret deer, uh. But this one is uh, absolutely batty. Uh, (laughs) It's about a a controlling uh, father who kind of locks his three adult children in the house to uh, keep them basically in a perpetual state of childhood. And uh, it's just freaking so strange and so dark and just it, it kind of lets him go into his deepest weirdest tendencies in this movie and i don't i i don't see how as he gets bigger he could ever go back to anything like this quite frankly but you know as as it stands though it's a really interesting early movie from him and we watched this on my my birthday weekend and uh when it was over we were just sitting there and uh i said man i i love this movie and gina looked at me with this like confused face and she said you loved this movie. And I, I think that pretty much sums this movie up. Uh, it, it is so what the fuck and, and so strange. And uh, yeah, it's great.
1: Yeah. It's um, certainly strange. And I, I remember all the, I mean, this was his big kind of breakout movie on like the yeah. festival circuit. And I was excited to see it because it is so strange and has such a weird concept. And I, I think I didn't quite uh, connect with it as much as I, I hope to And I I think maybe I've liked him stuff more as he's gotten bigger and especially like is directing other people's screenplays um, that his deliberately like off putting kind of distancing style in those earlier films maybe doesn't quite work for me. I really like the favorite, but the stuff he did before that, not as much, but certainly this is
0: a unique experience as a film. Yeah. I, I sometimes wonder like for, for an unproven, basically filmmaker like this, how you get a crew and actors to all want to come along with you on this strange, strange journey. You
1: know? Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that speaks to his ability to, to, you know, inspire or whatever, or convey his visions there because it's Seriously. certainly strange. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, what do you got for number four?
1: All right. So my number four pick is Clute from 1971, starring Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland directed by Alan J. Pacula who is known for these conspiracy thrillers. I feel like this movie is kind of thrown in with his other probably more well-known conspiracy thrillers from this time period, uh, The Parallax View and All the President's Men, which is by far the most famous and is a fantastic movie if you haven't seen it. Um, Clute is less of a political thriller than that. Um, It is about... A uh, private detective played by Donald Sutherland, who is the title character, Klute, um who is hired to investigate the disappearance of this business executive. And Jane Fonda, who really is the main character, uh, plays this prostitute who gets involved in this investigation. And so there's a mystery, and it does end up with some social commentary, especially a lot of kind of forward-thinking social commentary, I feel like, from a movie from 1971 about Gender dynamics and about male privilege. And it treats Brie, Jane Fonda's character, with a lot of respect and agency, and a lot more so than I would imagine for a movie from 1971 as someone who is this high end escort and likes what she does and finds it empowering. And yet also, it doesn't shy away from how this makes her life difficult and can put her in danger. Um, And eventually, she and Donald Sutherland have this kind of weird unspoken romantic connection but really this movie belongs to Jane Fonda and she is so so good in it um i i feel like it took me too long to appreciate how brilliant Jane Fonda is because she was gone for a long time and you know most of what she's done in her very later career is kind of silly stupid comedy stuff mm-hmm. um but in the 60s and 70s, she was brilliant. And um, I mean, I had the China syndrome on my list. Maybe it was last year. I don't remember. I think so, yeah. Um, which is also amazing. Uh, Barbarella is from the 60s is just so, so good that I watched again this year for an article. Um, so, but, but Clute, I mean, all three of those I recommend, but Clute is the one for this. And uh, just a general recommendation for Jane Fonda. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I've, I've never seen it, but I feel like this is one of those movies that comes up on a lot of lists of like, you know, the best 70s movies, you know, to, to go back and watch. So I, I'm going to have to see it some, someday.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's worth being on those lists. I think it's really, it's a really excellent, an excellent thriller too, and a great character study.
0: So my number four is actually an awesome movie year movie and the opposite opposite end of the spectrum from my last couple of picks here uh it is your pick down with love from peyton reed it is such a fun movie Uh, i'm really glad that you uh introduced us all to it and uh yeah, it's one of the best romantic comedies I think I've ever seen. Certainly one of the best in a long time. And while it, it's like a perfect romantic comedy, it's also, as we discussed, kind of like a spoof of romantic comedies at the same time, which just makes it all the better. And it's just a just a celebration of, of movie making and movie magic and just a total blast from beginning to end. And the whole cast is great. Ewan McGregor, Renee, Renee Zellweger, David Hyde Pierce, and Sarah Paulson, all just fantastic. They all just constantly one-upping each other and you know it's a shame like we talked about on the awesome movie year episode i, I feel like it just kind of got lumped in with all the other rom-coms of the early 2000s when it really is its own very different thing from any of those movies and uh, i i think people will continue to discover it over the years though and just be kind of blown away by by it. And Peyton Reed is just awesome. And as you know, I love the Ant-Man movies and uh, he's great. I, I, I very much always am looking forward to whatever he's going to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll co-sign all of that. Obviously it was my my pick and I was glad that you, you liked it so much. Uh, Jason uh, was less, I think he liked it, but he wasn't as into yeah. it. But yeah, this is a movie that I feel like, you know, if I've introduced people to You know, if you introduce it to the right people, people who like, especially if you like romantic comedies, and you can Mm -hmm. really see what's going on. I mean, it's it's more specifically a parody of those Rock Hudson, Doris Day, Tony Curtis movies from the 1960s. But even if you're not familiar with those, just the broader romantic comedy genre, there's so much parody going on here. And it works as its own movie. Which I think yeah. is is key to these kind of spoofs, that it's funny on its own, that the characters are endearing on its own. It looks the set design and the costumes are just astoundingly good. Um, and there's that scene Renee Zellweger gives this insane monologue that's got to be I don't even know. You know, it feels like it's like five minutes straight explaining yeah. the absurd intricacies of the plot that's just so, so fun. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously I, I love it. And I remember seeing it in the, I probably said this on awesome movie year, seeing it in the theater at a preview screening that for some reason was empty, even though it's like free and (laughs) giveaway tickets to it, but there was like nobody there. And I felt like that was the sign where, you know, no one wants to see this movie, but I, I, it does have a cult following now. And I, maybe Peyton Reed's success with the Ant-Man movies helps. And I hope it builds more of a cult following.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, let's go on to your number three. All right. Well, I'm going to mention Sean Connery again, uh, All after right. Highlander. Zardoz. Uh, is there, no, I still, you know, I still haven't <laughs> seen
1: Zardoz. I just, I just saw, I don't know when this is coming out, but I saw, I think January 1st, 2022 is the date that Zardoz takes place. I saw oh, someone tweeting fucked. about that. So <laughs> I still, I would love to see Zardoz actually. I know it was an experience for you to watch that. Oh, yeah. Um. So no, my pick is another is a sci-fi movie though, uh, from 1981 called Outland, directed by Peter Hyams, starring Sean Connery, and this I feel like is definitely an underrated sci-fi film. But it, it's 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 one of the kinds of sci-fi that I really like, where it's like working class sci-fi. It's mm. not a big space adventure, it's not an epic, you know, journey to the future or whatever. It's about these kind of greasy blue-collar people who work in a space mine. You know, they're on the one of these uh moon of Jupiter and they're all working for this giant corporation that doesn't care about them and doesn't care that they die. And the plot of this movie is Sean it's it's very much kind of a space western/space noir. So Sean Connery plays uh, the head of security for this this uh, mining colony. And he is not employed by the company. He is a government... It's not entirely clear, but he's an outsider who comes in and theoretically has his own authority. But like in a Western where the outlaws really run the town or the local rancher really runs the town, the company really runs everything. And as he's trying to investigate this uh, sort of epidemic of drug-related overdose deaths, you know, discovers the corruption that's going on where, you know, these drugs are being given to these miners because they help productivity, even though they also maybe kill them sometimes. <laughs> and so it's about, you know, very common themes of, of, of corporate corruption and being the lone, upstanding person amongst all of these evil people and not being willing to be corrupted yourself. and Connery is great at doing that. It's also full of these really excellent practical effects, the set design, where everything it reminded me of Alien and the Wayland Utani Corporation, where mm-hmm. everything is doesn't quite work properly, and it's all kind of dirty, and it doesn't look like this shiny future. It looks like a broken future. So, yeah. I, I don't know who sees this movie ever, and I don't know if anyone saw it in 1981, but it really kind of blew me away. So Outland.
0: Yeah, it sounds great. I, I've never seen it, but we've talked about that before on, on other episodes of the podcast about like those sci-fi movies that are just kind of feel real just within a futuristic world. And uh, yeah, that, that that does make for a great setting for that kind of a movie.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. And I'm, I'm about to bring it up again. So nice, <laughs> we'll get to that nice. again.
0: So, uh, for my number three, um, I kind of told this story in my letterbox review, but uh, I'll just uh, recap it a little bit here. Um this is this is a weird one for me uh, because uh, I, every once in a while I'll smoke a little weed or eat a marijuana gummy, you know, and uh, I, I don't do it very often. But um, when I do, I have no control over whether it's going to be like, oh yeah, I'm high, this is cool, this is fun, whatever. I'm going to laugh a little extra at the movie, or if I'm going to hallucinate and lose my freaking mind. It was the latter when I watched Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void from 2009, and. Where that movie ends and my brain doing whatever it was doing begins, I am really not quite sure. This movie is completely told in first-person point of view uh, after a drug dealer dies and is in life between life and death and is so trippy and so weird and as you know, I really like this guy's work. This is a, a confirmation of that, that I this is some of the most unique, interesting filmmaking I've seen. Unfortunately, I'm not sure which of it was real and which was my brain just going off the rails. Uh, one of these days I will rewatch it and I'll be able to tell you. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just absolutely uh, 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 full of color and full of just craziness. And I definitely think, fits in really well with Climax, which uh, another movie of his that I really, really love. But these movies that kind of mess with your perception in so many ways. And, you know, we all know that that's something that he likes to do with his movies. But uh, this one really, really, really trippy, weird stuff in it.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen that. I mean, I think we talked about uh, *Climax*, which I know you loved, and I I hated that. Oh movie. yeah, not a Josh uh-huh.
0: movie. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, but I mean, he's certainly like a notable, you know, filmmaker and very polarizing. I'm I'm I, despite how much I hated *Climax*, I would be curious to see this and his other films that are so controversial and so. Provocative and and that's you know, I feel like that's interesting, even if you come away thinking like uh I didn't enjoy that at all. Like, yeah. you know, respect to somebody who is pushing boundaries or whatever. So maybe someday I'll watch that, but I probably won't be high.
0: Yeah, I, I would say uh I, I won't be next time, let's put it that way. So <laughs> yeah. What do you got for number two?
1: Okay, so number two, as I said, is gonna go back to the exact same kind of genre that I was talking about with Outland. Much, much later, uh, though, is a film from 2018 called Prospect, uh, directed by Zeke Earle and Christopher Caldwell, I think their first film. Um, and it is also this very working class sci-fi movie. And it's it's also, it's a low budget sci-fi. And so I love when you have these very resourceful indie filmmakers who are like, all right, we have two spacesuits and we have one kind of spaceship looking set Let's make a movie. Um, Mm. And that's essentially what this is. Uh, Pedro Pascal uh, plays a a prospector on this this moon or planet of some kind where miners are looking for – it's not even entirely clear what they – they're kind of like a fungus maybe, or they're maybe a a living – entity or whatever. Another thing I like when done really well in sci-fi movies is where the characters talk in all of this, like jargon that you don't understand and will never understand, but it gives Mm -hmm. you the sense of like this larger world beyond the little planet that this movie takes place on. And so also like Outland, this is sort of a space Western, uh, Sophie Thatcher, Um, who is great currently on Yellow Jackets, uh, which is if we did the top 10 TV of 2021 would be my number one pick. Um, She plays this teenage girl and she and her father are traveling from planet to planet mining. And uh, uh, Jay Duplass plays her father and Pedro Pascal's character, they have like a very Western-y showdown and he kills this girl's father, but then he kind of takes her under his wing. And it's so it's this this kind of mismatched buddy story uh as well as this survival story because they have to get off the planet before all of their uh you know oxygen supply runs out and they find you know they encounter other prospectors who are kind of like bandits and you know so it's very westerny uh but it's very well acted um and it 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 has that perfect otherworldly sense of like, I believe that this is just one tiny little corner of this vast sci-fi universe that exists beyond the scope of this film. So prospect.
0: You know what? I've never seen it, but I actually saw the short that oh. they made of this beforehand. I saw it at a film festival and yeah, you know, for being like a low budget short, it was uh, really well done. And I I'd, I'd be curious to see how it was expanded into this feature.
1: Yeah, I didn't. I think I maybe I didn't realize it was based on a short, but I'd like to see that.
0: Yeah. My number two last year, we had an awesome movie year movie from Robert Altman, Three Women on my list, and I said I was going to start filling in my cinematic blind spot of Robert Altman, and that didn't quite happen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> too many movies to watch. But, he
1: was very prolific,
0: yeah, yeah. So, but I did watch one of them uh, in the lead up to Jim Cummings' new movie, The Beta Test, and that is The Player, uh, which seemed like it would be a perfect uh, movie to have watched to use as a puzzle piece, and I was of course right about. That that but um yeah, I, I loved it. It's just absolutely fantastic, and that's two for two now with uh, with Robert Altman, so I definitely need to get my uh, my marathon going one of these days soon, but uh, it's just a great story, great performances all around. Tim Robbins, of course, in the lead of this, and uh, just this mystery set in Hollywood, and just all of the meta humor that's based around Hollywood and movie making and the behind the scenes of, of working in the studio system, and uh, there, there's so much in there that, that I absolutely love, and the mystery itself is actually a really good mystery at the center of it which only makes it all the better Uh, and so yeah there's just there's so much to love in this movie and I I really want to rewatch it sometime soon just because I feel like there, there's so much happening that, that there's a lot to really pay attention to, and, and I, I want to, like, get back in there and, like, really enjoy this world some more. But I, I also think it would make for a great official piecing-it-together movie because all these Hollywood types are constantly describing movie projects as this meets this meets this. And I'm like, those are puzzle pieces right there. So I uh, love it. <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I, I mean, I haven't seen it in since whatever year it was that it came out 92 video. yeah so probably since 92 or 93 or something yeah uh but i loved it even then you know when, as, a, as a teenager it might have been the first altman movie that i saw yeah. uh and yeah it was great and i'd i'd, I'd love to revisit it because i'm sure i would appreciate it even more now having seen so many other movies and altman movies and being more familiar with the whole showbiz insider stuff but yeah. even as a you know the uh, 12 or 13 year old or whatever. I, I thought this movie was, was super entertaining.
0: Awesome. So we're to our number ones. I am very curious to hear what your pick is going to be, Josh. What do you got? All right. So I almost feel like I'm slightly letting
1: uh, myself down by picking a movie that is like a very famous classic as number one, mm-hmm. but I loved it and i never seen it before. So, Hey, there it is. Um, so it is <laughs> the night of the hunter, uh, okay. directed by Charles Lawton in uh, famously the only film that he ever directed uh, from 1955. He was mainly an actor, um, and this movie at the time that it came out was not successful, and so for various reasons, he never directed another film. But what an amazing debut. Like, you would never imagine that this movie is a first-time filmmaker. And I mean, it helps, I'm sure, that he had that experience as an actor and had worked with actors, because the other great thing about this film is the performance from Robert Mitchum, Mm -hmm. Possibly one of the most terrifying film performances ever. Um, And he plays this uh, traveling preacher who is also a serial killer who uh, finds out that, uh, you know, he's been in prison and his cellmate in prison is this guy who'd stolen money and hidden it away in his family home. And so Robert Mitchum's character sets out to steal the money from his former cellmate who has now died. But he does this by ingratiating himself with the man's widow and the whole town and becoming super beloved and marrying this woman, all for the sake of getting the money, because he is that greedy and is that calculating. And (laughs) it turns into this kind of cat and mouse game, too, between him and her two young children, who are the only people who are on to him. And the way that, of course, children are completely helpless, and no one believes them, that this nice guy is, in fact, a murderer. And it makes him so much more evil that his adversaries are innocent little children. so it, it's, it's a great suspense story. It's scary. Uh, it looks amazing. It's very German expressionist influenced from a visual standpoint. Um, and yeah, just Robert Mitchum, so good. And I, of course, my one point of reference for this, the famous thing is that this character has tattoos on his knuckles that say love. And hate on each hand. And so, of course, I remember Sideshow Bob from (laughs) The Simpsons with his tattoos that have not not, it has to say L-U-V because he doesn't have as many fingers. Sure, Um, But (laughs) if that's all you remember, this movie is much more serious than that. So it's not a movie probably that I need to recommend to people, but it is still great. So The Night of the Hunter is my number one.
0: You know, I've I've never seen it, but you always see it show up on lists of like Scorsese's favorite movies and Robert Altman's favorite movies and uh, I think the Cohen brothers' favorite movies. It's like every filmmaker that we love loves this movie, and so I should watch it sometime soon for sure.
1: Yeah, Cohen's especially, I can see a lot of influence there in their in their work.
0: So, I will go to my number 1, which is a movie that you recommended to me, Josh. All right. I, it is called grand piano. Oh. Yeah, from yes. 2013, you brought it up during our episode on the thriller Oxygen, which is another one of these kind of one location thrillers, and this one is about a concert pianist with a sniper pointing a gun at him and he will kill him if he doesn't play this complex piano piece perfectly and it is just super over the top it is tense it is unique uh it's actually written by damien chazelle uh back before he got to make any of his movies like whiplash and la la land it's directed by eugenio mira who is actually also a composer and as a composer that is just such an awesome thing to make a movie about music like this you know uh but the performances are just fantastic from elijah wood and john cusack and uh also, Alex Winter is in it. Which, by the way, I, in preparation for this, I was you know getting some notes together, and I went to its Wikipedia entry. This was Alex Winter's first non cameo performance since Freaked. Another one Ow. of my picks on this list. How about that? Uh, <laughs> but this movie is just a total hidden gem, and I, I hope more people check this out. Like I, I hope anyone listening to this checks it out. It is. Uh, such a unique, exciting, fun movie. And uh, these one location thrillers really can be effective if done right. And uh, this one is done perfectly.
1: I am so glad that you liked this movie that I recommended to you because <laughs> yeah. it is weird. And it's also kind of a, it's a movie that I feel like you either will love or hate. Um Yeah. But I just loved it. And I was looking up. So this this was my number one pick for this list, this first time watches list in 2016, which is when I saw it. Nice. And I don't remember why particularly I saw it exactly. But yeah, it's just, it's so insane. And you're like, I feel like it. this, you know, is one of those movies. And I think I was saying this about Oxygen, where you start it, you're like, how is this a feature film? There's no way that there's enough for this to be a feature film. And then it just totally. goes in insane new directions. And yeah, I, I I love it, and I I I almost wish that Damien Chazelle would make a movie that's more like this rather than the like kind of prestigious, serious stuff that he's become. Um, yeah, because this one is so much more fun.
0: It is. It's so much fun, and yeah, I mean, I always look forward to his stuff, but uh, this is especially. Uh, I, I would love to see him make something like this at some point. Yeah. Totally. So let's throw a few honorable mentions out there uh, and we'll wrap this thing up. Josh, uh, are there any movies that didn't quite make your top 10, but that you wanted to uh, bring up?
1: Yeah, I wanted to mention a couple things quickly, and I was kind of vacillating on which movie to put at number 10. Uh, mm. So right below that, uh, The Tall Target, which is a movie from 1951 directed by Anthony Mann and is a noir thriller about a uh, uh police officer who's trying to prevent an assassination attempt on Abraham Lincoln. On a train, and the whole thing takes place on the train, and it's set, you know, on the eve of the Civil War or whatever. And Lincoln never appears in the film, but uh, it's all about, you know, this conspiracy to possibly assassinate him. And it sounds like the combination of noir style and Abraham Lincoln should not work, but it really, really <laughs> does. And Anthony Mann, who's known for also directing a lot of westerns, uh, great suspense, really fun, entertaining film. And then on a completely other note from 2019, a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. I love Ardman. And I I think like the first Shaun the Sheep movie, I didn't quite love as much. But for some reason, when you add aliens to Shaun the Sheep and the fact that they can come up with so much humor without any dialogue in these films, just the, the way the visuals look of these great stop motion characters and um, the inventiveness of the plot. You could show it to a four-year-old and they would love it, but I also loved it. So yeah. uh that I think is a net was a Netflix original. But uh Farmageddon, the Shaun the Sheep movie.
0: Farmageddon. Solid yes. title right there. I I, <laughs> I like that title. But yeah, I know people like those movies. And you know, the stop stop motion animation is, you know, always great to watch, at least. Yeah, so. yeah.
1: It's so creative and fun. I mean, Ardman does great stuff in many ways, but that was that was a fun one that I watched this year.
0: So I've got three honorable mentions here. Uh, First one I'll mention is an awesome movie or movie from 1999. It's American movie, uh, the documentary, which is just a total celebration of filmmaking and indie filmmaking specifically, and the kind of oddballs that come from the world of indie filmmaking. It was just a, a real blast to watch from 1990 I come in peace, also known as Dark Angel, the uh, Dolph Lundgren action movie directed by <laughs> Craig R. Baxley, which uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it features the best titular line of yes. all time.
1: I. I <laughs> yeah. So first of all, I would—is this an actual good movie? Like I'm, I'm asking you this because I don't know.
0: I liked it a lot, but as you know, I like some pretty bad stuff sometimes, but there is just some really over the top, ridiculous stuff in this movie. And, you know, it, it has some moments that feel like they're just taken or that were taken for some bigger action movies of the nineties, you know, and it feels like they kind of took them right from this. So yeah. I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of great moments in this movie.
1: All right. I mean, I have seen it, but, and I, I remember I, for some reason, I owned this movie on VHS when I was like (laughs) 11. It was one of a very small number of movies that I somehow owned, possibly because my dad got a free copy of it or something. Um, But I literally remember nothing about it except that line, which is Mm -hmm. possibly one of the most memorable movie lines ever.
0: It is. It really is. It's absolutely incredible, which makes it all the weirder that they've changed the name to Dark Angel at some yeah, point in the, the movie's history.
1: It's such a Just, generic title. And it's, it's, isn't, wasn't it like a Jessica Alba TV series from like the 2000s so. or something?
0: I think so. No yeah. Good. But r- real movie fans know. Yes. But, uh, and then my, my third honorable mention, a movie I can't believe I didn't see until this year, but, uh, 2009's Black Dynamite. Uh, talk about great spoof movies. Um, there, like I said, there, there's not many in the last couple of decades, but this is one of the great ones. I mean, it is so ridiculous and and so fun, and there's so many funny moments that just spoof, you know, everything in these kinds of movies, and uh, it does a really great job of it.
1: Yeah, I think I want to say I mentioned it on a piecing it together episode. A while I think back. you did
0: actually, maybe on the Velocipaster. Yeah. Was and that I, it? Like
1: assuming like, well, obviously Dave loves that movie and it was right. amazing that you had not seen it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I did. I never got around to it, but uh, yeah, it's great to uh, find new spoofs. That's, that's, that's like a, I, I could start a whole spoof podcast. I'd be happy just watching them all, except yeah. there's so and, many. But would it ones. also
1: be a spoof of podcasts?
0: Well, anything I do is a spoof of podcasts. <laughs> <so>. Oh, <God. laughs> Josh, That does it for this episode. Looking back at these movies that we watched in 2021. uh, Why don't you tell people what's going on with Awesome Movie Year?
1: Awesome Movie Year is still a thing. And Awesome Movie Year, I feel like it goes along with what I was saying about how I like that people make these lists because Awesome Movie Year is all about looking back and discovering movies and the greatness of movies from the past. And we are looking back at our own looking back (laughs) in this current season. It's our 10th season. So as a sort of anniversary-style thing, we are looking back at all the years that we've previously covered and picking one movie from each of those years that we didn't talk about at the time but wanted to or discussed a lot, potentially covering and doing those movies. So we're getting the whole spectrum of the years that we've covered on Awesome Movie Year. So a lot of fun um, that we're currently doing awesomemovieyear.com, uh awesome movie pod on Twitter, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram is where you can find all of our stuff. And if you go to joshbellhateseverything.com, I actually do have some content <laughs> including uh the written version of what we've just talked about, my whole list mm-hmm. of the movies that I saw this year for the first time, as well as an archive of every one of those that I have written going all the way back to 2008.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to uh to reading your expanded thoughts on any <laughs> of this uh, any of this stuff so so many sure. valuable
1: thoughts there that you can read <laughs> i like your thoughts josh thank you. good thoughts thank you
2: <laughs> what's up everybody this is brian here to tell you about our podcast binge tv our hosts include seven best friends with a love for all things television we cover a range of genres with a focus on fantasy and sci-fi but also dip our feet into drama, horror, comedy, and pretty much anything we think is good television. We use the traditional deep dive formula for new live shows that are released week to week, but our calling card is our Rooks and Vets and Pitchtown TV series. Rooks and Vets pairs two of our hosts that have seen a show with two of our hosts that have not seen a show. Pitchtown TV is when we have a special guest pitch us a show by having us watch the pilot and trying to convince us to watch the rest. If you're craving more content on some of your favorite TV shows, then you should listen to Bingetown TV. Find us on our website at bingetowntv.com, the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you may find your podcast.
0: All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation about our top 10 first-time watches of 2021. Thanks so much to everybody for listening, and thanks to Josh Bell for joining me on that one. You can find Piecing It Together... Wherever you listen to podcasts, so uh, wherever you're listening to it right now, make sure to go hit subscribe. And while you're at it, if you like what we do here on the show, we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us. You could do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and Good Pods. And Wherever you like to leave reviews, we would appreciate your review. While you're at it, you can also share the show. That's awesome when people do that. And you can follow us on social media at Piecing Pod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. And uh, what else do we do? Uh, there's the Patreon, produced by David Rosen. Check that out. Get in touch with me if you ever want to join me for a future episode. we got lots of movies coming up in this Looking to be very strange year, uh, a third strange year in a row. That's uh, that's awesome. Uh, we got lots of movies to cover though, so always looking for new guests. So definitely get in touch, and uh, most of all, just keep listening. We really appreciate that you're out there. So let's close this thing out with a piece of music, like I always do, and then it's time to start recording some more episodes. I am going to close this out with a track called The Precipice from a free bonus album I put out a few years back called Like Ashes, which is available exclusively on my Bandcamp, which is davidrosen.bandcamp.com. So if you like this track, you can go get the whole album that it comes from and uh i have a bunch of other albums available but uh this is actually a free one so you can go check that out but uh yeah this song is called the precipice hope you enjoy it we'll be back with more piecing it together real soon